that I think the most beautiful sound in the world is the sound of people who have trusted in Jesus blending their voices together in praise to him. It is an amazing thing that's going on. Sometimes it's easy for us to lose the wonder of what's happening here when we gather for church. Uh, we are just a tiny outcropping of what is going on all over the world where people that Jesus has drawn to himself are in this weekly rhythm of their lives gathering to be the body of Jesus in the world as a tangible expression of the unity we have in Christ. And th this is just an amazing privilege to be part of. And I hope that you think about that every time you walk in these doors or whatever church you normally attend, if you're visiting with us or if you're from out of town, that your, your perception of what is truly going on would be elevated as you think about church and the gathering of God's people. Well, this morning we are going to give our attention again to the book of Acts, so I'll ask that you take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. We have been in a series for several months now through the book of Acts, and as you can tell, if you know the number of chapters in this book, we're nearing the very end. So we're in the second to last chapter, and I intend to preach after this sermon just two more sermons from the book of Acts. Uh, one focusing on Paul's uh, stay in Rome and how he unfolded to this, his audience the scriptures and proved to them, uh, his audience indeed, that Jesus was the Messiah and how that informs our understanding of what this book is all about. And then the final message I intend to take uh, a big overview of the book of Acts to see what significant lessons we have gleaned from Acts over the years. So that's what I plan to do, Lord willing. Of course, uh, the Lord might change my mind uh, to extend it perhaps a little bit. But as we head into the fall, uh, by God's grace, we'll be starting a new series afresh. So we have these uh, last two or three weeks before us uh, to steep our minds and hearts in the book of Acts. Now we are in Acts 27. And uh, this is a detailed report of this shipwreck that Paul experienced while he was on his way to Rome. Uh, not long ago, I read an update from a friend of mine who was moving from a western state to an eastern state. And this decision to move was a somewhat painful one because it had involved his and his family's attempts to plant a church and that those attempts had not been successful. And so they decided to switch their focus, uh, move their family, they had, they had three boys, move their family, and uh, down to the south. They have, one of their children has some severe ongoing medical needs, and as the uh, update went, they had been traveling for two solid days nearly, and after a lot of fatigue and, and tiredness, had planned to stop at a, at a fun place where the family could be together and the boys could have, the young boys could have some fun. Well, it was then when they ran into trouble, so an hour away from their destination, their car broke down. And the repairs for their car would have been about $800, but that was all they had budgeted to be able to have for this time of recreation for their boys. And so they pulled off where they could and found a hotel where they thought there was a swimming pool at least that they'd be able to uh, let their kids swimming. And they promised their boys, at least we'll get to go swimming. They get to the hotel and the pool is closed for maintenance. And then on top of it, the, their, their boy with, with some extreme medical, ongoing medical needs, his, some of his medical equipment broke that night as they were putting him down for bed. And th they said they were just so discouraged, so overwhelming, and I must have, so overwhelmed, and I must admit, as I read that update, I was thinking, why did it happen, have to happen to them? The, this, the, the idea of this family trying to serve Jesus 
making a long journey with their, their little boys just to help people understand who Jesus was and how to follow him, it seems just so unfair that they would run into so much trouble. I mean, it'd be one thing if they were going down south to rob a bank, right? Uh, it'd, be one, it'd be another thing, it, it'd be slightly less complicated if my friend didn't believe in God at all. It'd be like, okay, that's what, that's what happens. I just got played a bad deck of cards. I just got some tough luck. But he believes in God. He's serving Christ. Why does God send storms to people along the path of obedience? And I think the same question could be asked about Paul as he's on his journey to Rome. Why would God throw a storm in the middle of the Mediterranean that would eventually wreck the ship that Paul was on at the risk of his and the hundreds of other lives aboard that ship? Why would God do that? I think that the tension is increased, and I want to heighten this, attention for, this, this tension for all of us just a moment. The tension of this problem is increased when we see that this journey of Paul is a kind of deliberate echo of another Israelite preacher that found himself, himself in a storm. It's probably the most famous story that a lot of people, even those who aren't familiar with Christianity, know about an Israelite preacher who found himself in a storm. Who is that? Jonah. Everybody thinks about Jonah. But the difference between Jonah and Paul is that Jonah was running away from God to get away from God's calling, and Paul was living in obedience to God. When I was a teenager, I heard a a preacher preached a sermon on Jonah, and he summed up like this. He said, when you say no when God says go, you'll be in a mess till you say yes. And that was really powerful. That really stuck with us. But as I was studying this in contrast to Jonah, I kind of thought we may have to tweak that just a little bit. And then it's when you say yes when God says, when you, when you say yes, let me try to think of this. When you say yes in response to God's call, you might find yourself in a mess after all. That's what happened to Paul. Now, of course, don't get me wrong, that doesn't have the same ring to it as that preacher I heard when I was a teenager. But the problem faces us all. I think this is an important problem for every Christian to grapple with. Why would God send storms my way along the path of obedience? Two weeks ago, we looked at this passage from Matthew. Where Matthew recounts Jesus meeting his disciples in a storm and now we're looking at another storm. That is Paul's storm that he experienced on the Mediterranean when he was on his way to Rome just to share Jesus. Now, Luke's answer to that question, why would God send a storm to someone on the path of obedience? It's a very powerful answer, very powerful. But the way I need to show you the answer, I'm going to have to, I really need you to think with me, okay? You're going to have to, I'm going to compare it to climbing a little hill with me. And from this hill, I want to give you a broad perspective of what Luke is doing. Luke is as the author of the book of Acts here. And also he authored the gospel that bears his name. So there's the gospel of Luke and there's the book of Acts. Luke is the author of both. But to, to discover the answer to the question, why would God send a storm to someone who's serving Jesus? We're going to gain that answer if we just climb up and get a higher elevation and look at both Luke the Gospel of Luke, and Acts at the same time. And when we look at both of his works from a literary perspective, we see a very interesting pattern that emerges when you compare how he recounts the life of Jesus and how he recounts the life of Paul. 
Now, I'm not going to walk you through the passage just for, just for the sake of time, but I'll summarize it for you, and I think as I do, it'll begin to click with you. So here's what Luke is doing. Luke shows us in his gospel, his account of Jesus' life, that Jesus was resolutely determined to go to Jerusalem even though he knew that trouble would await him there. So was Paul. Okay? In Jerusalem, Jesus was arrested by the Jewish authorities. So was Paul. In Jerusalem, Jesus was handed over by the Jewish authorities to the Romans. So was Paul. Jesus stood before a Roman governor, so did Paul. From the Roman governor, Jesus stood before a Herod, so did Paul. What, what is, what's going on here? Luke is showing us, and this is something we could only see as we get a top view, a literary analysis of what he's doing. He's showing us that Paul's life and Jesus' life are following a similar pattern. Now, you remember those old achievement tests uh, questions where like repeat that fill in the pattern like which which thing goes next you remember these things so it's like you know a, a, a cross a circle a cross a circle and what's next all right and if you're really brilliant you'll 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 choose the cross you'll cho you know you'll complete the pattern right so what, what we're thinking here okay if Paul and and Jesus are kind of in lockstep here what happens after Jesus was handed over what happened after his trial with with Herod well the next thing that happened to Jesus was what it was his crucifixion. But the next thing that happens to Paul was not crucifixion, but what? Acts 27, a shipwreck. Okay, Luke is doing something here for us on purpose to show us something about the Christian life. Luke is showing us that the Christian life is a cross-shaped life. See, by overlaying the cross on top of the shipwreck, almost like, almost like a stencil through which the shape of the cross can be drawn, Luke is showing us, here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's, it's almost like this. God has put the stencil of the cross and drawn the pattern of suffering to glory death being the way to life and he draws that pattern on the life of every person who has sworn allegiance to jesus as savior and king that's how luke is answering this question why does god throw suffering and storms and a shipwreck into the path of someone who's just trying to follow jesus because that's what it looks like to live the christian life the christian life is a cross-shaped life now I took some time to get to the central point of my sermon, but I want to unfold it for you from this text in three parts, okay? As I typically do, right? You, what would you expect? There's going to be three parts here, right? But I want to show you from this chapter that the cross-shaped life it is a life of promise. We're going to see some promises here. That the cross-shaped life is a life of promise. It's also a life of purpose, and it's a life of providence, okay? So, first of all, the cross-shaped life is a life of promise. I want you to look at the text here. Paul is recounting a vision he had. He's in the middle of the storm, and he's speaking to the sailors. He says in verse 24, if you're in chapter 27, look at verse, uh, let's start in verse 23, actually. Verse 23, he says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not 
be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, God has given me a promise, and this promise is no one's going to die. Everybody on this ship is going to be safe. Now, that seemed like a, a ludicrous idea because they're seeing where the, ship, where, where the storm is heading. It looks like it's going to end really badly. And Paul says, it's actually not. Everyone's going to be, everyone's going to live. There's a promise, right? Now, that promise is just, is one part of the many promises that Paul has received throughout his life. If, if you'll glance back at chapter 26 and verse 6. Paul has already said, standing trial, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in what? My hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. So what Paul is saying is this. It's because of a promise that I stand trial. It's because of a promise that I'm on this ship. It's because of a promise that I'm going through a storm. And it's because of a promise that I have the confidence that we're going to make it through this storm. What is going on here? The Christian life or the cross-shaped life is a life of promise. In fact, the promise that Paul is referring to is actually part of a much greater promise that God has made. In fact, this promise serves as kind of the structural backbone of the entire Bible. It's a promise that began way back in Genesis when God, when God assured human beings who would just begin to self-destroy themselves because of their sin and self-centeredness. He said, I promise I'm going to send you a Savior so that once again you can have fellowship with me, so that once again I will be your God and you'll be my people. God is speaking to human beings. And we see this promise repeated to the descendants of Adam and Eve, to Abraham and, and Jacob and Isaac, and to their descendants and to the nation of Israel that formed afterwards and to the prophets that came afterwards until all the way at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we see the consummation of all things in which God says, now finally, I'm your God, you're my people. You see, the promise that God will be the God of human beings and, and he will enter into a relationship with human beings, that promise forms this structural backbone of the entire Bible. Or you could think of it this way if, to continue the anatomical metaphor. It's kind of like the bloodstream of Scripture pumping out from the very center through the largest arteries to the smallest capillaries. What is it? Promise promise God says I will be your God you will be my people so the Christian life the cross-shaped life is a life of promise now here's specifically what I mean by that when I say the Christian life is a life of promise it means that everything that Christians do we do in trusting response to promises God has made everything we do the way we live our lives our response to co-workers the way you structure your marriage and your parenting and children, your response to your parents and how you behave yourself in, ethically in the workplace and how you approach retirement and how you approach days of diminishing health, all of this you do in response to promises God has made. You, your Christian life began when you responded to this promise that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
you respond over and over again when you feel like the crushing sense of guilt. You know you've done something wrong and you feel guilty about it and you feel like I must be condemned before God and you respond to this promise, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. You respond to the promise that we read of in Ephesians chapter 5, 1, you are beloved children. Jesus says in, in John chapter 10, that those who receive him, they're like Jesus is holding them in his hand and no one's going to pluck him out. That's assurance. Everything you do, my friends, as a Christian, you do in response to promises God has made. In his famous allegory, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan uh, tells us about two characters. The two, well, the main character's name is Christian, but Christian and hopeful. They wander off the path and they find themselves prisoners of giant despair. And they're thrown into the dungeon of Doubting Castle. Have you ever been there before? And giant despair throws them into this little cage. And he doesn't put anything in that cage, no food, no water, except just three things. A rope to hang themselves with, a knife to slit their wrists with, and a bottle of poison to drink. It was basically like, there's no options here. The only option is the way to end your life. So as Christian and hopeful sit there in the dungeon of Doubting Castle, prisoners of giant despair, they begin to wonder whether these options are their only options until finally, and Bunyan tells us, it was around midnight on Saturday that suddenly Christian says, what am I doing here? I have a key in my pocket. <laughs> Hopeful says, well, what, what key is it? Christian says, it's a key called promise, and it can open any door in this stinking castle. And they begin to put the key into the lock, and even though it's creaky and rusty and stiff, it causes the door to that dungeon to come flinging open and the door to the, to the castle to come open and they're free. My Christian friend, there is no dungeon that you will find yourself in, but that a promise of God will be the key that unlocks that dungeon for you. Is it the dungeon of shame? There is therefore now no condemnation, my friend, to those of you who are in Christ Jesus. Is it the dungeon of feeling like you lack all wisdom to navigate the perplexities of life? The Bible says that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he'll give generously and not even rebuke you for asking. Do you despair of life? God says his loving kindness is better than life. Do you despair that God's presence has been taken from you? The Psalms say that God is like a sun and a shield. He both illuminates and he protects. He will give grace and glory. Is it the dungeon of being afraid that you somehow missed out on something really important in life? Psalm 84, 11 says, No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God's not holding anything back from you. There is no dungeon that you find yourself in that cannot be unlocked by the key of the promises of God. So my friends, use it. Why? Because the cross-shaped life, the Christian life, is a life of promise. So soak yourselves into the promises of God. Claim the promises of God. Get to know this book better so that you can revel in the promises of God. The Christian life is a life of promise. Are you afraid that you'll endure a trial that is too much for you to bear? 
Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to mankind. But God is faithful, and with the temptation, he will provide that way of escape that you may be able to bear it. It's a promise. Believe it, my friend. Believe it by faith. Now, the beautiful thing about the promise piece of this picture of the Christian life, the cross-shaped life, is that it leads into this next idea that we see here in this passage, and that is that of purpose. So because the Christian life is a life of promise, we see Paul, even on the, even on the stormy seas, even in the, the threat of shipwreck, he's clinging to the promises of God, and that, that brings up the fact that the promises of God are what gives us purpose. Look at verse 24 of chapter 27. Paul says, this angel of God, this messenger from God, stands before me and says, do not be afraid. Here's the purpose. You must stand before Caesar. In other words, this is a reminder to Paul. Paul, your storm is not just the random blasting of the Mediterranean winds. You are not the victim of fate and the frothing of this ocean. No, God is in control of every wave, of every molecule of the Mediterranean Sea, and you will stand before Caesar to testify about the saving grace of Jesus. This is amazing. What, this is a life of purpose. And you can see this very clearly if you just go back to uh, the previous chapter, when uh, chapter of verse 16 of chapter 26, well, there's the word here in the, in the ESV, when Paul is recounting his conversion, how he became a Christian, how he began this cross-shaped life. Look at verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, Paul, for I have appeared to you for this what? For this purpose. What was the purpose? To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen, uh, in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Paul, Paul Jesus is saying, your life is not random. Your life is not the the result of some random collisions of molecules, your life is a life of purpose. That the Christian life is a life of purpose. The cross-shaped life is a life of purpose. Now, let's think about purpose a little bit. Let's think about what happens when people lose a sense of purpose. Why do I exist? Is my life really worth anything? Do these events, are they even taking me anywhere? Is there any rhyme and reason? Is there any pattern? Uh, purposeless is a, purposelessness is a horrible thing. It's a terrible place to be. But those who begin thinking hard enough about life often get there. Right. If there is no God in the picture, if there is no creator who has a purpose for all these things, life does become meaningless. This is the, the existential conundrum of Solomon, as it recorded in Ecclesiastes. He said, everything just seems to repeat itself. Pleasure, it's pointless. Work, pointless. Beauty, pointless. Why? He says this, if death is the end of everything, then the wisest man who ever lived just ends this life the same way that the most foolish man ever lived. So what's the point of it all? Once you take God out of the picture, suddenly life melts into a storm of chaos and a meaninglessness. But my friend, if you are a Christian, you'd never have to fear that your life was without purpose. 
Why? Because as a Christian, you know by faith that God has created you, loves you, and has a calling for your life, and that is to bring honor and glory to the most glorious being in the universe. Now, isn't it interesting, if you don't believe in God at all, or maybe you're here this morning, and there is just, you'll kind of be, maybe you could be frank about this. Maybe you could say, there's some skepticism in my heart as to the reality of Christianity. Maybe God exists. Maybe he doesn't. If he does, how would we know? And if he does, and we could know, how would we know he has, he's revealed himself in the Bible? All these questions maybe sometimes swirl in your mind. But let me ask you this. Is it just a mere coincidence that the craving in your heart for a purpose corresponds exactly, precisely to what the Bible says about your heart? Is that a mere coincidence? How could it be that everybody needs a purpose and you find this craving so deeply within you, it's even more, you, you want purpose more than you want existence. P people know that they need a purpose beyond mere survival. Just let me give you this example. Someone wants to sell shoes. Okay, so they say, we have great shoes, buy our shoes. But people also recognize that other people want more than shoes. They want purpose. So they say this, buy our shoes, we have great shoes, and for every shoe you buy, we'll buy a pair of shoes for someone who doesn't have any. Now that's purpose. You see, it's not just that we want shoes. It's not just that we want a home to live in or a car to drive. We want some unifying purpose to drive, drive all this, to bring coherence to our lives. Is there any coincidence, my friends, that the craving you have in your life to live for a distinct purpose of something greater than yourselves happens to find a perfect correlation in this Bible that says, of course you want to live for a purpose because you were created in God's image to love and adore him and live in fellowship with him forever. That's why God created you. The Christian life, the cross-shaped life, is a life of purpose. It's a life of purpose. Now, if you embrace, here's the connection between the purpose and the, the, the promise and the purpose. If you embrace... The, per the promises of God, you'll never need to worry about your life being purposeless. You might think, I'm too young. I'm only five. My young friend, Jesus loves you and wants you to give your life to him to serve him on purpose. You might think, I'm too old. I have too many years behind me. My friend, you can steward the rest of the moments you have to the glory of God. I was talking with an elderly member in our congregation a couple years ago who came to me and said, I still want to serve God. I want to do something to serve the Lord. And what I was able to tell that person is, my friend, you're serving the Lord just by being here by showing me what an example of, of faithfulness looks like. Not from, from the oldest to the youngest of us, if you believe that God loves you and has you on this planet for a purpose, no matter how many moments you have left, then you need not live life with purposelessness. I was speaking with an, an older Christian uh, uh, recently, and I happened to tell him that I was turning 38 next week. And he said, ooh, 38, that's interesting. Did you know that most men, when they turn 38, 47, and 63, reach a major life crisis? <laughs> no, I didn't know that. 
I don't know what's going to happen to me. And then he began to describe why this is typical, right? Because at age 37, he said, you're realizing that you can't lead and work purely out of innate youthful energy. At some point, you're going to have to labor from wisdom. 47, he said, associate, well, I don't go through all this. I could tell you this later. It's not inspired, just, just human wisdom. But the point is, each stage of life comes with its unique challenges and unique opportunities. My older friends, don't despise your age or your weaknesses. You can show in amazing and beautiful ways what the grace of God looks like when it's refracted to the prism of your many years. My young friends, don't waste your youth. Don't waste it by wandering or experimenting with sin. There is nothing but heartache in that, my friend. Live for Jesus. Give your heart completely to him. Do you know what God can do with you? you? You'll never know. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. He says, the will of God, it's good and it's perfect. And how will you know so? You'll know it by doing it. The cross-shaped life is a life of purpose. Now, I haven't really delved into the problem yet, have I? <laughs> that is the storm, the shipwreck. Now, the question then to return to what we talked about at the beginning is, if the cross-shaped life is a life of promise, and if it's a life linking with that promise of purpose, then why such problems? And that takes us to the third way in which this idea is developed in this chapter, what a cross-shaped life looks like. That is, the cross-shaped life is a life of providence. It's a life of providence. We see this in verse 26. Paul, uh, Paul is recounting what, what God had revealed to him. He says, everyone's going to be safe. Every life is going to be spared. But the ship is going to be destroyed. We're going to have to run aground a certain island. What's going on here? Paul is saying this. People are going to live through this. But it's going to happen through the storm. In other words... God is in control of every wave, of every gust of wind. That's God's providence. God's providence is God's loving, purposeful overseeing of every detail of our lives. That's God's providence. And this is help for us, helpful for us to keep in mind. God's providence is God's loving, purposeful overseeing of every detail of our lives so that he directs these details and events to his good purposes, which is our good and his glory. God's providence is probably most concisely summarized in a verse that many of us know and love, Romans 8, 28. That God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And then Paul goes on in that passage in verse 29 to explain what his purpose is. His purpose is that we would be shaped, conformed, traced into the pattern of Jesus Christ, that we may be conformed to his image. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have sworn allegiance to him as your Lord and Savior, then every single detail of 
your life, everything that has happened to you this past week, good or bad, are God's tools in his toolbox to shape you, to craft you, to mold you, to put pressure here so that you can be more like Jesus because being more like Jesus is what allows you to be most exhilarated in joy because that is what allows you to enjoy perfect fellowship with God which brings him glory. That's why you ran into this storm this past week. That's why you had that difficult conversation on Tuesday. That's why you have this challenge, this, this crisis coming up this coming Thursday. If you're, a, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is not random. This is all part of God's providence. God's loving, meticulous, overseeing of every detail of your life for your good and his glory. Now, we see this in this passage. that God used the storm to bring Paul to the Isle of Malta and from Malta to Italy, the coast of Italy, and there to Rome in a way that none of us would have thought about. But isn't that true of our lives too? Think about the twists and turns that God has brought you through to bring you to this point. If you could see down the corridors of time to look at the, your, your future, say you're older right now and you can think when I was a you could think back when I was a teenager would you have believed that God was going to lead you this way that's God's providence now of course this raises some questions and we see them in the text here too and I'm going to deal with this just very briefly but I think it's important to acknowledge <clears throat> look at verse 22 Paul says uh, this is actually the uh, Paul, yes, Paul, Paul speaking to the fellow travelers. He says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. What is he saying? No one's going to die. That's a promise. It's going to happen. But if you look down at verse 31, Paul said, it's in, uh, What's going on here is they, 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 some guys were trying to escape off the ship. Verse 30, the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship. They lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the boat. They say, hey, captain, we're just going to lay some anchors down. It's going to be okay. Just turn the other way. And they're like, let's get out of here. So they're lowering the ship. The, and Paul notices them. And Paul says, no, unless these stay on the ship, no one's getting out of here. Now think about this carefully. Paul says, they've got to stay on the ship or no one's going to stay alive. But God had promised that everyone was going to stay alive. You beginning to see the tension here? If people have to obey so this is going to work out all right, then what's the guarantee that it's going to work out all right? The tension is between God's, we call it sovereignty, God's control over every event, and man's what? Responsibility. You might think, well, which is it? Is it absolutely guaranteed that this ship is going to, that, the, uh, that the people are going to make it alive, or is it that the people are responsible? There is another aspect of the people's responsibility. Uh, he said, we really need to eat something, because if you don't eat anything, you're going to die. Now, the question is, is it human's responsibility, or is it God's sovereignty? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. You know, it's just... It's part of the, the genius of inspired scripture that it does not attempt to 
untangle philosophical problems for us partially because we're bumping against the limits of our understanding. At some point, we have to recognize that unless we live our lives in a practical way with the conviction that God is in control and yet I have responsibility, we can't live right at all. Can we untangle that philosophically? Can we see how those seeming converging paths actually end up being parallel as if we're looking at some sort of canvas displaying some kind of perspective? No, not with the minds we have. And yet suppose you were to live life as if everything depended on you. What a life of anxiety that would be. Suppose you were to live life as if nothing depended on you. What a life of irresponsibility that would be. We live within the tension, the God-given tension of God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And that is what it means to live under God's providence, to live in God's providence. So, the cross-shaped life is a life of providence. It's a life in which God lovingly directs every detail of our lives. But we see this in our lives. Like, we can bear testimony to the fact. In fact, a lot of times people, they'll, they'll, they'll give a testimony. They'll say, I was... Uh, living my life here and then God brought this trial along here and then I met this person and only 20 years later did I understand how God was working all this this out sometimes we can see God providentially arranging the details of our lives in this life but we see this most clearly in the first century when humans took responsibility to crucify Jesus of Nazareth and yet God in his sovereignty was using the most cruel and the most unjust actions of human beings to bring about the salvation of the world. Peter made this very clear in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. He said to his listeners, he said, you took Jesus and you crucified him. But what you were doing was actually something that God had foreordained to bring about salvation. How do we resolve this tension between human responsibility and God's sovereignty? We cannot do so except by bowing in worship at the foot of the cross. Because there we see God's control and human's responsibility on display. So what's the response to God's providence? Well, we see three things here in the text. The response to God's providence, there are three. First, look at verse 24. Do not be afraid. Second, verse 25, take heart. And third, we see this in a couple places throughout the passage, obey. Don't be afraid. Take heart and obey. My friends, if, if your life in allegiance to Jesus, in your following of Jesus, has the imprint of the cross upon it, that means God is tracing out this pattern in your life. Suffering is the path to glory. Weakness becomes strength. Death becomes the gateway to life. So if that's true, how can you be fearful? Now, by, by this command, don't be fearful, what Paul doesn't mean and what I don't mean is that you'll never feel the emotion of fear because often we do. But what it does mean is this, we don't need to let the feeling of being afraid inform our decisions. 
It means that our decisions can be informed by our faith in Jesus Christ, whose death became the path to life, whose suffering became the way to glory. That is the cross-shaped life. It's a life that is without fear. Why? Because Jesus has conquered the ultimate reason for fear, and that is death. So do not fear. And second, take heart. That means live lives of courage. Because Jesus has overcome, he guarantees that you will too. Jesus told his disciples before he went to the cross, he says, don't fear. I have overcome the world. And third, obey. Obey. That is, live a life of obedience to Jesus as your master. You might say, well, I'm afraid to obey. Maybe you're a young person. You think, I don't know what God is going to ask me to do. I don't know what my life will look like if I give it over, over to God completely. Now, what you're saying is, I can't trust the one who loved me enough to give it, to give it, that he gave his life for me. My young friend, no one else will ever love you that much. No one else ever can love you that much because no one else can give that much. Jesus gave everything so you can trust him, so you can obey him. I say that to my young friends, I say that to my old friends and everybody in between. That a life lived, a cross-shaped life, is a life lived trusting in the providence of God, which is a life in which we could say, no fear, courage, and obedience. You know, my friends, there are just two kinds of people in this room. Either you have embraced Jesus as your Savior, as your rescuer from sin and its consequences, or you have not. Let me just speak to you just briefly, those of you who, say, who would say, I, I believe I have embraced Jesus. I have believed that Jesus is God's Messiah, my Savior. Okay, if that's you, let me speak to you a moment. Do you believe that the trial in, that you're in right now or the trial that you'll face is a trial under God's sovereign good control? My friend, if you don't, what tends to happen is this. You tend to grow bitter. I deserve better than this, you think. This shouldn't be happening to me. After all, I'm making a journey to serve Jesus. And God has sent me a, a storm my way. I deserve better than this, you think. I'm just trying to serve the Lord. I'm just trying to give to him, and he gives this back to me. You see what happens, a kind of, a kind of hardness, bitterness can, can sink its roots into your soul and without anybody really picking up on it immediately, you may kind of grow into a crusty, twisted, cynical kind of person unless you have the cross giving shape to your life that says, I don't deserve anything, it's all by mercy anyway, and the trials that God is sending my life in my life. He's sending me into my life to shape me to become more like Jesus. So what, that, that humbles you deeply without despair, and it gives you joy without pride. That's a cross-shaped approach to storms in our lives. Is that you, my friend? Has it come to a point where you realize, man, I've really gotten bent out of shape about something. And I need to turn back and look at the cross that is what Jesus did for me by dying and rising again and let that completely restructure my heart. 
trials are like hot sunshine. It can melt the wax or harden clay. What is it doing to your heart, my friend? But what about, what if you're in the other category? What if you're saying, I've not embraced Jesus as my savior? This is your most urgent need, and I, I, plead, I plead with you that you see that Jesus of Nazareth, because of his death on the cross and his resurrection, is the savior of every human being who will call upon him in faith. So pledge your allegiance to him and him alone. You must do this. It's, it's, not, it's, it's a matter of great urgency because Jesus is Lord of all. And you don't know how much time you have left on this earth. You may feel well and healthy. You may feel like you have 30 more years, 50 more years. You don't really know. The Bible says to call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. If you, conf- if you believe on your heart the Lord Jesus and confess with your mouth that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. My friend, if you have not done that, I would urge you to do that. You could do that in your seat. You could do that when we bow to pray. pray. And if you do, please talk to somebody that you know is a Christian or talk to me, and we'd love to t- let you know what your next step should be to how, how you can have a relationship with Christ. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? Our Father, we call you Father as the one who guides us through every storm of life, We pray that you would allow our hearts to respond in faith to what you have done for us in sending Jesus to die on the cross and triumph over sin and death. I pray for anyone in this room who has not trusted in Jesus to be his or her savior. And for all of us who at some point or another go through a storm, may we live the cross-shaped life. In Jesus' name we pray.